Even here in Iraq, the very cradle of the Islamic State, most people were not radicalized, and even those that lived under the control of the Islamic State, many tried to resist, either silently or openly. How do we explain this? There must be factors of resilience to violent extremism that has been overlooked. Here I am at the top of the citadel of Erbil in the Kurdistan regions of Iraq. Settled more than 6,000 years ago, the Erbil citadel is believed to be one of the longest continuously inhabited sites in the world. Clearly an ancient wonder. While the view is spectacular, with life going on about its daily routine in the contemporary city of Erbil, at the foot of the citadel, we have gathered here to talk about the manifestation of violent extremism in Iraq and neighboring Middle East. But perhaps, also more surprisingly, why people, even in the most enabling environments, are not radicalized, but in various forms has tried to resist and remain resi uh, resilient. The contemporary history of these vast areas that we see in the horizon, not so long ago, they represented the frontier between the Kurdish Peshmerga and the forces of Daesh, that is the Islamic State. But there is much more to this story than headlines of violence and destruction. My name is Morten Bøhos, research professor at the Norwegian Institute of International Affairs and the principal investigator of the Previx project, a project funded by the European Union's Horizon 2020 program that aims to understand both drivers of violent uh, extremism and how local communities respond and resist through various ways of expressing resilience. And with me here today is Dr. Dlaver Ala Alden, the founding president of MER, the Middle East Research Institute in, uh, in Erbil, and a former minister of higher education and scientific research in the Kurdistan regional government, and also a professor of medicine at the Nottingham University in the UK, and Juline Baudouin, a postdoctoral fellow at the University of uh, Edinburgh, and a senior research fellow at the Open Think Tank in Duhuk in the Kurdistan region of Iraq, and also a member of the PAVE research team here in Iraq, assist the project of Prevex that was funded over the same call, uh, in uh, same Horizon 2020 call as Prevex. So since we are in Erbil, let us start with the Kurdish regions of Iraq. What is the situation here after the end of Daesh as a force that controlled large amounts of territory? It seems like IS ideology never made a very huge impact here in the Kurdish regions. So let's start by that issue. Um, Dr. Dlaver, what explains this in your point of view? Well, thank you, Morten. First of all, Bakhir ben Bahuler, welcome to Erbil. And uh, as you said, it's one of the oldest uh, citadels, but it's actually the longest continuously inhabited, not one of the, that's what uh, we, we emphasize. We're very proud of it uh, being one of our symbols. And actually when I grew up, I was, my family lived only 15 minutes away and I used to have a lot of friends here and there are still a couple of families living here. So it is still inhabited. Uh, we in, we're in a very interesting neighborhood, very tough one. We've all together seen a lot of wars and crises and bad governance. So as a whole, when you think about Iraq, yes, we all witnessed these things. We went through these different wars and, and, and turbulences and turmoils. But you have to come down one level to local level to see the variation. There's a huge variation 
between the ISIS appeal or violent extremism in Kurdistan region, in Nineveh province, and in the south. So you have to look at it province by province, which is what we did in our study when we compared Kurdistan and Nineveh. Kurdistan, what was unifying people, whether they were religious people, Islamists, non-Islamists, secular, was this dream about independent Kurdistan, what we call Kurdiety. So the struggle that the Kurds always had, the focus of their mind was actually that Kurdishness, Kurdish struggle. There, there were emerging Islamist movements and radicalization attempts, and there were a few hundred people who joined ISIS. But actually, ISIS, especially the caliphate once it was established, it, it was so disillusioned, uh, disillusioning to the people, there was a, a backtrack or, or a negative reaction in that people got disappointed, especially when ISIS showed such an extraordinary uh, brutality against Yazidis, uh, Christians, and other uh, components of Iraq. And of course, when people realized that actually um, what they are signing up to was, if anything, was a threat to the cultural identity, to the national identity of the Kurds. So the impact of ISIS, the move towards radicalization was much less in Kurdistan region compared to other areas where they actually joined and fueled the, the movement of radicalization. Thank you, Glavir. Uh, Julien, how does this sort of sit with the research that you and the team at the OTT in Duhok has uh, conducted? Yes, well, first of all, thank you so much for having me here in this beautiful site. I would like to say that it's important to uh, go beyond Daesh and to go beyond the perception that violent extremism is mostly religious and mostly Islamic in its most uh, violent, radical form. Actually, if you look back at the recent history of the Kurdistan region, there are several periods of time that could have catalyzed several enabling factors in order to foster radicalization and most importantly mobilization, right? And even back then, violent extremism did not have a huge impact in this part of the country. I will cite one example, for instance, back in 1991, after Iraq left Kuwait, uh, the rule of Saddam Hussein was confronted by two um, revolutionary waves. So one in the south, the Arab Shaban um, Intifada, and in the north, which is now Kurdistan, um, the, the Kurdish national uprising, right? So that was even before um, Kurdistan was recognized as such and gained semi-independence from Baghdad. And what happened is that uh, Hussein's army completely crushed the revolutions initiated by the minorities. And this extreme violence could have had terrible consequences. It could have, um, you know, justified the use of violent extremism on the Kurdish side, but it could also have completely crushed the struggle for Kurdish independence and recognition. But it did not. And I think that what somehow saved the Kurds from both those things is the fact that they had political representation. So the Kurds, they were able to peacefully channel their frustrations, grievances, concerns, their call for change through political representation and leadership. Very interesting. But I mean, Glavier, uh, you mentioned also the, you know, this dream of independence as a, as a extremely important factor with regard to social cohesion, as, as a glue that really keeps sort of the Kurdish uh, society, at least here in um, the Kurdistan regions of Iraq, together. But what about the, the situation after the 
relatively ill-fated uh, referendum. I mean, one could have imagined that that would have led to, you know, it was a lot of hopes around that referendum, and it ended uh, not in a dream, but rather, I would, maybe you disagree with me, but I would say that it almost ended in a, in a nightmare, uh, both the loss of territory, but also something of a humiliation for parts of the political leadership. And one could imagine that that would in itself would have created an enabling environment of disillusionment that would have sort of created a space for uh, some of these uh, violent extremist ideas to creep much more into Kurdish society, but it doesn't seem to have been the case. I mean, what, again, I mean, what are your, your views about this? Well, the, uh, the consequences of the referendum uh, was uh, many things. Many, it had many consequences, but violent extremism was not one of them. Um, it actually made the Kurds reflect back on the experience and the, and the aftermath. Uh, people, many started be, be, to become more inward looking. Uh, maybe the Kurdish internal divisions and polarization increased. And it uh, coincided with a lot of other crises, financial, political, and security crises. Uh, but ISIS was out of the way. Caliphate had already disappeared. So people, uh, people's theme, people's thinking, people's demand changed from actually going all the way to independence. Now, this time, less on the Kurdish nationalism, more on services, human rights, um, the prosperity, better management, good governance, rule of law. So that's where people started being disillusioned. And more importantly, the, the trends became people's demand more on actually preserving unity, uh, having functionality in the government. And obviously with the financial crisis, people's uh, prosperity and livelihood. But also people started being uh, feeling the gap between them and the authorities increasing, the consequences of those, as well as, well as corruption and, and uh, poor services, all of these did not manifest themselves in violent extremism. Instead, it, it manifested more in migration. Uh, unlike the old days when uh, mostly the, the poor or the, the working class, as well as uh, other general public, used to migrate, especially young men and women, these days, actually, it's the middle class, it's the upper middle class, the people, the affluent guys who were beneficiaries of this new experience in Kurdistan, they started migrating. So in some ways, it's not exactly, it's the same enabling environment, same factors, but somehow in Kurdistan, there's enough uh, resilience or maybe different kind of thinking or focus that led to other consequences. So now, five years later, the referendum's consequence is still here, but people kind of attributing the current issues less to that, more to the governance side of it. Thank you. Uh, Julien, anything to add to yes, this? Yes, I'd, I'd, I'd like to add the fact that when the referendum came, of course, we saw the Kurdish unity crack a little bit, but it also happened just after the, the, the Daesh shock, what yeah. we could, uh, you know, uh, call this way. And I think the priority was simply not violence anymore. It was reconstruction and solidarity and claiming you know, better rights and services. But I think what Daesh made very clear is that violent extremism is not the way to channel all those claims. 
We need to at least spend a few minutes also on the role of religion. I mean, uh, Laveri, you and colleagues have just released uh, what I think is a very important report about um, where you compare the situation between uh, the Kurdistan region and uh, Mosul and in particular. And I must, I, I was very intrigued when, uh, when you sent it to me and asked me to comment on it, because when I started reading it, I was seeing that, <coughs> much to my surprise really, I mean, we have uh, in this Previx project, we have findings also from uh, North Africa and the Sahel, and when we ask people around why, what led people, and particularly young men, into this pathway towards violent extremism. Very few people, and here we are talking about people who know people who has in fact joined these kind of groups. It's very rare that they talk about religion as an issue that suddenly, I mean, the, the, the son of Mr. X uh, woke up one morning and found that they thought that he should embrace uh, some violent Salafi ideology. What they do talk about, which is very similar to your, some of your findings also from, uh, from Mosul, is um, it's not about religion. Uh, at least the first journey into violent extremism is not about uh, religion or other the or theological issues. It's about lack of jobs, lack of uh, employment, uh, lack of educational opportunities, basically about people who find that all their aspirations for a meaningful life, a good life, a life of at least where they have a chance of social mobility has been blocked in some ways. And of course, and this is where I would like to have your comments about, what does this tell us about how we should deal with what we call enabling environments? So Julien, maybe you would like to start here. Yes, absolutely. I think that in Iraq and in the Middle East in general, religion is in fact a mobilizing factor to justify the violent struggle mm. for a very political project. I believe that violent extremism is in fact very political and obviously the dynamics of group mobilization are different from the dynamics for um, individual mobilization, right? But let's go back to, to Daesh. If we look at their discourse that justify their violent struggle and if we start deconstructing it, very quickly we will realize that they were in fact fighting for something that is very similar to a nation state. That is the Ummah, mm. right? The, the Muslim nation inhabiting within the military borders, the de facto borders of the caliphate or the Islamic State, right? So they were fighting for a state. And I think that an example I would like to mention, and we see it happening currently in the south of Syria, in Dara and in Kunaitra, we see um, uh, an alliance between Daesh cells, because it's obviously not an organized group anymore, and militias that are supported by Iran. Now, if we look at the religious factor for violent extremism, it doesn't make much sense, right? Because Daesh always portrayed great enmity and completely rejected Shia Islam and Shia Muslim. They were extremely violent against them. They're targeting them, actually, yeah. right? However, if we look at this convergence of interests um, from a political and economic way, then that makes much more sense. So what those militias are doing in the south of Syria is that they are recruiting local populations in order to show that they can actually attract local support and they have some legitimacy. They are offering 500 US dollars monthly salary to people, which is extremely attractive, right? So what it shows us, what it tells us is that the economic factor is a key driver to violent extremism. And it stems from a very practical, pragmatic realization that 
those groups do fill in the vacuum left by the state in some of the areas, right? Not in the, in the whole country, but they fill in a vacuum and they do indeed control all aspects of local life. So I think that this absence of the state, not just in Syria, in Lebanon, in Iraq, to some extent, obviously, in Yemen, in Libya, or what is called the state of the no state, the Allah Daula, I think it is a key driver to violent extremism. And what it means is that fighting violent extremism without the state is going to be very complicated, if not impossible. And, that, and, and here I would like to turn to you, Dlaveri, because um, <coughs> as I see it, I mean, the state in this region, but also in other regions where uh, we have been working in the Prevex pro pro uh, project. I mean, to a certain extent, they are part of the problem. But we cannot really imagine a solution to the problem without them being part of it. And uh, you and Mary, have, uh, you have a long-standing history of working on issues of state reconstruction, state reform. So. And, we, and you also mentioned in uh, you display very nicely in your uh, report uh, also about the failures of state responses towards violent extremism here in Iraq. So, I mean, what can we learn from what has happened here? What one shouldn't do? And how should state respond when, when the state is, is in fact part of an enabling environment? I agree entirely. Um, Nineveh, this is exactly what happened. Um, 2003 onwards, the people of Nineveh uh, felt excluded from government, from services. There was huge corruption and they did not feel that shared, they shared ownership of the new system, the new government, in the, the constitution and so on. And the government failed to actually embrace them, invest in this area and then achieve uh, coexistence together. So that, with the Arab nationalism, with the extreme uh, Ba'athist views fueled by Islamic extremism, that combination was explosive. So this is what led to people seeking anywhere uh, out of this current system, and that's where ISIS took advantage. Kurdistan had already been free some 12 years earlier, and Kurdistan had already moved on. So they did not share exactly the same exclusion, or, or sentiments, especially when the Kurdistan regional government was itself uh, in charge of itself uh, and had its own economy. In Kurdistan also, the, the new parliamentary system uh, actually included all the Islamists. Even some people who were previously extremists, they actually signed up to the new political system and they became elected and they became MPs. So that created a, a kind of environment in Kurdistan that did not allow things to go further. And there was one other interesting thing I want to highlight. In Kurdistan, people thought, in Islamists or scholars, always felt as though Islam was used by the invading powers to invade, conquer, and then uh, suppress nations. And we as Kurds have been uh, victims of that. People start arguing, why can't we have our own brand of Islam, which we already have. Combining that brand of Kurdish Islam with Kurdish dream of independence, with Kurdish self-determination, with the Kurdish culture, Kurdish identity, then would make it more like a local brand that isolates itself from ISIS, from others in the South, from other countries in the neighborhood. And this is what actually is now being preached. And if you look at the government here, we have two governments to talk about. One is in Baghdad, where we think that they have a lot of things in writing, 
based on the constitution, based on guidelines, policies of violent extremism prevention. But this, this is on paper. Implementation has been difficult and they are more like managing, tackling the violent extremism, not preventing. Whereas Kurdistan is thinking about prevention. They entered a lot of these policies into the education system, into the mosque, into the religious institutions. And now they are trying to promote that type of Kurdish Islam that would be more like a, a more inclusive, more embracing. But they always face the same problem. Without tackling the rule of law, good governance, good economic program, and, and reducing the gap between the people and the authorities, you can, you'll always face the same challenge of people not being happy and expressing their anger one way or the other. And I think that is a very good part in this conversation to also start uh, addressing the issue of this quite, I would always say that, uh, you know, this program, externally sponsored program for preventing and countering violent extremism has been something of a growth industry over the last 10, 15 years. And uh, Iraq and also the Kurdish region has seen their fair share of them. Um, in this, in both our projects, we have also looked into this. I mean, Prevex has done this, Pava has done this, we have looked at this. And at least to me, I mean, they often lack what I call conflict and context sensitivity. They seem to be, and they also lack this understanding, which both of you have been talking about, what an enabling environment actually is. Because if this is more about the fact that people who have lived there, young people in particular, I mean, they have had, and I would say that many of them still have very good reasons for being angry, for being frustrated. And if it's that frustration and that anger, which is based on quite genuine, basic grievances around the economy, about employment, about education, is there any point of sort of having large-scale sort of programs aimed at de-radicalization, if that is not the issue. I mean, is this much more of a developmental issue, of a governance issue, than it is about people have suddenly become convinced of Salafi theology, at least the rank and file of these groups. I mean, I, mean, I don't doubt, we all know that there is a hardcore leadership it was in this group, and to this extent they still exist, there is a hardcore leadership that is ideologically, religiously, theologically convinced. But for the majority of those that either joined or were on the fringes of these groups, I doubt that, that this was the driving factor. And if it's not the driving factor, how should this, how should we try to give better and more concrete advice to all these people who are running around you now with, with this PCVE programming. I mean, I think here, uh, even uh, here in uh, Iraqi Kurdistan, in Erbil, I mean, UNDP is doing this, you have uh, IOM is big on this, I mean, you have a number of others, some of them may be coordinated with each other, most of them I assume not, because we know from the field of uh, of donor policies, that coordination. I mean, everybody agrees on coordination, but nobody really wants to be coordinated. Everybody thinks that I should coordinate. So first, I mean, what's, how does this look like? I mean, Dlaver, what is your impression of this externally driven 
PCVE programs that has mushroomed in uh, both in Iraqi Kurdistan but also in the rest of Iraq over the last 10-15 years. I think the Iraq had tremendous international support across starting from before ISIS emergence all the way to here and there have been a lot of investment in terms of expertise, actual financial support, um, capacity building, all of that. But of course when your partner, the host partner, is not switched on, is not focused and is not doing what it takes to remove all the factors that enables extremism, then there's a limit how much the international community can do. Uh, of course, there's no one alone. Whatever we do here in Iraq will influence everything everywhere else. But nevertheless, you've seen that in Iraq, we still have hundreds of thousands of internally displaced people not gone home. Their homes are not renovated. We have had a whole year of political deadlock without a functional government who can actually implement those policies to be in place. And of course, the political system has, is going around in circles of political security deadlocks with obviously the neighboring countries not helping. But internally, this, the, we, have, we are still waiting for a functionality, for a leadership to emerge that will then translate all those um, support and all the international expertise and, and help into a real uh, policies that implement on the ground. So we have economic issues where we have youth unemployment, youth um, uh, empowerment is still a problem. We have the uh, obviously rule of law we mentioned many times and, and, and government being able to at the local and national level to, to do what it takes to satisfy people. We don't have that. So essentially this instability and securitization of the entire political process has not been helping, but when you go down to local level, we have non-state actors, armed groups, who are, who, who are deeply institutional in terms of corruption as well as militarization. They're becoming problematic in such that we've reached some, in some areas, irreversibility. So we really need, again, governments and their national security councils to take charge of leadership, of actually communicating vision, coming up with a, a strategy and then make people share the ownership of this process and go for it. At the moment, we don't have that kind of character in Baghdad who could be partner with the rest of the world, who can actually then be focused on making not just uh, stabilizing a region, but putting those um, uh, policies into practice. So unfortunately, we've been going round in circles, having the same argument every year for the past 10 years. And if anything, when we look back, we say, not only we've not tackled them, we've allowed nature to evolve without design, meaning that it, it, nature, obviously, it's going deeper and more difficult to tackle in the future. Hopefully now, we have had the consequences of such neglect. We have now governments who feel what it, uh, or they, they do see the, the um, outcome or the consequences of uh, allowing corruption to go deeper, allowing bad governance to continue. So hopefully the political elite has woken up to the fact that they have to do something. And the onus is not on the international community. It's on the Iraqis or the national leaders, local leaders themselves to, to lead the way rather than expect the rest of the world to carry them with them. Julien, yes. your views. Well, 
Um, I do see a number of challenges when it comes to those projects and programs that aim at tackling or preventing violent extremism. The first one is I think that the dominance of external actors will see, will say in general. Unfortunately, it, it reflects the fact that there is a lack of governmental comprehensive strategy to do this, right? That's the first challenge. The second challenge, obviously, and you mentioned it, is the lack of local ownership. So if we do a very quick review of those programs in Inewa Plain, for instance, which is um, partly what we did during the PAVE project, we will realize that um, on average 75% of them are exclusively funded by external actors and less than 30% are implemented only by Iraqi organization, right? So th there is a lack of uh, local ownership, right? But what I want to say about the local, um, uh, local is not Iraqi. As Dr. Dlauer said, the enabling environments in Auler is not the same as in Baghdad, as in Bashika, Tel Afar, Basra, and so on and so forth. That is why I think that the recipients of these programs, the communities, need to be part, not just of uh, part in their implementation, but in their design, in order to foster this hyper-localized need assessment and conflict sensitivity, right? Mm, that being said, oh, actually another challenge, because I don't want to, unfortunately there are many, is also the lack of awareness of population about those programs. There are a lot, but people don't necessarily know about it. So it, it, it shows that there is a problem, right? That being said, it doesn't mean that we should completely get rid of external actors. We do need them, and I am absolutely convinced, and you said it, that a policy to efficiently tackle or prevent violent extremism is rooted in a long-term vision and in a developmental vision. It requires two things, massive funds and a lot of patience, right? Uh, and to do that, unfortunately, the government might not be enough, I think. And that's why I'm really, really worried when I witness some dynamics and practices of both the international community and the Iraqi government. I'm thinking of the fact that most of the displaced people have not returned, but also that some of them are forced to return when it comes to, not to Kurdistan, but to the rest of the country. Uh, I'm very worried that um, the emergency response plan is not going to be resubmitted in 2023 and that so many INGOs are just going to leave the region. I'm worried about the failure of the Iraqi government to issue civil documentation for the populations, and most of them are women and children still living in the two remaining camps in Nineveh province, right? So what it tells us is that development can certainly not be punctual and be exclusive. Thank you. Um, we are now coming towards the very end of this conversation, and I mean, we have covered a lot of ground. We're standing here on the sort of top of 6,000 years of civilization, an unbroken history of this place being inhabited. And I would like to sort of challenge you now, not to look back in history, but to look into your crystal ball. And what does the future tell us here? What is going to happen? I mean, have we seen is the, do the end of Daesh as a, as a territory controlling force, does it also mean that at least for now in the, in the history of mankind, we have sort of reached the peak 
of this type of violent extremism and that it will continue to decrease, at least in this part of the world. I mean, we know from other areas that Prevex work like in the, in the Sahel that it's rapidly on the rise. But here, is it over or is there a new storm lurking in the horizon as the, uh, also this part of the world is now experiencing the effect of a global economic recession uh, and in, uh, increased inflation, increased food prices and so on, caused by the Russian war in Ukraine and the Western-led global sanction regime. So would you like to start <laughs> quickly now, uh, sort of sure. 30 seconds, yeah. what does the future look I, like? I wish I could uh, be more optimistic. Um, after the ISIS collapse and the caliphate collapse, uh, everybody started behaving as though that's history, it's never come back again. Global powers moved on. The Middle East is no longer a priority. The regional powers are behaving as though this episode is over. The local leaders are back at it in the way that they were before, so the factors are still here. So everybody's now assuming this chapter is over while the people's unhappiness, the factors that led to ISIS are still there. And we are surrounded by fragile states, increasingly fragile states, failed states, and important poor governance and lack of rule of law. All of these are still there and economic hardships are there. Are we going to see new manifestations, not necessarily in the same way as ISIS? It could be, it's yet to see, but unfortunately, no, none of the powers we mentioned, local, national or international, are tackling the root causes. This is where we are. Julian. Last comment on this. How does the future look like? I wish I could be more optimistic. 15 but it's seconds. Very, 15 seconds, maybe 30. It's very challenging to be optimistic because, you know, one crisis replaced another in the world. And I can see the people of Iraq are being completely forgotten. The people of Syria are being completely forgotten. And, you know, the, the enabling factors that made the soil so fertile to allow the rise of violent extremism, unfortunately, everything is still here. You go in the street, people are mad because people are, are frustrated and unfortunately it's not getting away yet. And because I want to finish on a positive note, right? As scholars, we tend to focus very much on what's obvious and materializes. Let's not forget about all the people who every day say no to violence and about, you know, all the time when violence does not happen because it's still the great majority of the cases. Thank you, Julien, and thank you, Dlaver, uh, for this uh, wonderful conversation. And um, thank you. on behalf of uh, Prevex and on behalf of NUPI, I would like to thank you so much for being part of this. Please stay attuned for more news from, from Mary, from Pave, and from Prevex. So thank you all. Thank you. Thank very you. Much. Thank you. <laughs>